0: David had this morning so you notice how fast the uh, announcements went <laughs> nothing like having 87 points and spend like 35 minutes on point one and, uh, and then go and I don't have next week so uh, here's what we're gonna do uh, this, this morning we we're uh, concluding what turned out to be an eight-week exercise that ex- has examined the subject of imper- personal integrity and uh, could anything be more relevant based on everything that's going on in the news today I think it, also, it goes all the way back to Watergate, basically, and for the last 20 to uh, 25 years, we've had a situation that continually seems to come up in the media uh, with regards to personal integrity. We've gone through it in the last couple of years with Jim and Tammy Baker and the fiasco that was involved with that with Jessica Hahn and uh, all the financial extravagance that came to light because of it. We've seen it with... Um, um, Gary Hart and Donna Rice and Ollie North and arms for hostages, the Pentagon Defense Department, the allegations about kickbacks that were involved in letting out government contracts and uh, on and on it goes to uh, just recently I guess even the endless number of accusations and resignations that took place in Reagan's cabinet. It's just an ongoing situation over and over again the subject of personal integrity continually comes to the forefront in the media and uh, now recently with uh, this whole thing with house speaker jim wright and i I cut an article out and just read a couple of the allegations and it's interesting the things that are going on says that the house ethics committee which we've talked about in here that formulates the standards by which everybody should adhere to that's a member of the uh, the government says that he has violated or at least they're accusing him of violating at least uh, 69 house rules on ethics his position as Speaker of the House hangs in the balance because of some of his uh, alleged a- actions that has taken place. So they basically, stripped to their essence, the accusations involve friendship and money, two common denomin- denominators of politics. So they got on and just talked about what these 69 allegations were, most of them stemming from a book and some royalties, and on a relationship that he has with a friend in Texas, and it says the rule is this. Here's the rule. The House rule prohibits members from earning more than 30% of their salaries in outside income. The rule applies mainly to the fees that members are paid for speeches. It specifically exempts book royalties. Well, the House Ethics Committee charged that when Wright could not accept any more speaking fees in a year, he or himself, he or his staff would arrange for groups to buy bulk copies of his book. Wright would then receive the royalties. While the issue comes up, whether the royalties were exempt from the income limitation, as Wright contends, or whether they should be considered speaking fees in disguise as the ethics committee has charged. It says Wright got to reap the royalties, 55 cents on the dollar, an unusually high figure, considering that the industry norm was 10 to 12 percent. So, was he trying to disguise the income? Then it goes on and talks about a friendship that he has, and it says House rules prohibit lawmakers from receiving gifts worth more than $100 from any person having a a direct interest in legislation. Subsequent guideline warned that, quote, unless such a gift is from a close personal friend, it is most likely offered because of the member's position as the United States representative. Their charge was that he violated this by accepting gifts over $100 in the amount of $145,000 from 1979 and 1978. A lot of little $100 gifts there racked up. Well, the issue, though, is that whether or not his, his friend that gave him all these things was just a friend and, and thus wasn't subject to the, subject to the rules. And um, so they go through a, just a whole gyration about what's right and what's wrong, what's morally right, what's ethical, what uh, conforms to the standards and what does not. Over and over again, we read about it, and it's an ongoing problem. And so what we've done is we've tried to address this whole issue in a series that we've taken a look at on personal integrity. The problem that we saw as we were going through the series was, can a person maintain personal standards of integrity in an environment that is increasingly hostile to what they have labeled narrow-minded convictions? See the trend in our country over the past 30 years has been to do away with absolutes or rigid standards for personal conduct. We've become basically a society that has done away with black and white. We have now introduced gray into areas that were previously black and white. It was cut and dried, everybody knew where it is, but now everything is gray and we're not sure. So we've developed a whole new language that has made our actions much more acceptable. We have uh, termed things like, no one tells a lie anymore, It becomes a miscalculation of a verbally expressed statement. (laughs) You know, homosexuals are now gay. Adultery is now an affair. Divorce is a mutual agreement to head in separate directions. Abortionists are called pro-choice. And on and on it goes. In fact, why don't you I'll I'll read you a term. This is from um, a great theological source. Have a good day newsletter. Comprised by the real estate industry for house hunters they have interpreted anybody in here in real estate No, you know why they're all out showing houses this morning. That's the whole problem here If you know somebody give them a copy of this morning's tape. They'll be on sale in the back of the room though no. What's the standard? Yeah, what's the uh, health ethics committee standard for that? Anyway, uh, okay, you tell me what this means. Here's a real estate term and what they really are trying to say is something else. The term is this, unobstructed view. No tree in sight. Exactly, that's it. I don't start, very good. I, that was very good. Uh, let's see, waiting for your imaginative touch. Fixer <laughs> upper, yeah. Co- complete disrepair. Here's one, handyman's dream. (laughs) Owner's nightmare. Let's see here, Uh, central to everything. A very noisy area. Exactly, now you're catching on. All services available because none are hooked up. Exactly, you've been there. Uh, Let's see, Uh, this is a good one, secluded area. It's like no road in, can't get there from here Uh, on paved road that's a good one houses 10 feet from the freeway Uh, rustic appeal outdoor plumbing only and the last one and probably the best one of all and we hear it all the time in Southern California to justify the astronomical prices of homes today it is land alone worth the purchase price it had better be the house is worthless (laughs) but you know that's the whole problem isn't it we have just got we got terms for everything to make it a lot more easy to pallet it right and so that's the whole problem with integrity well I am hoping that this morning as we conclude this series that uh, my intent is to summarize everything on integrity not make it ambiguous not make it palatable but just kind of lay it out just like it is. So that there isn't a person in here that can't walk away and think that's what integrity is. Oh, okay. Forget about all the jargon and the gyrations we do and let's just get right down to the basics as far as what integrity really is. And you know what's so funny is, even the secular world is getting sick and tired of the easy way that we accommodate all the things that are going on. I thought it was fascinating that Time Magazine recently had an entire issue on ethics and it was entitled Whatever happened to ethics, assaulted by sleaze, scandal, and hypocrisy, America searches for its moral bearings. Gary Trudeau, which is fascinating to me, the guy who created Doonesbury, at a commencement address recently said, we live in a day when men would rather be envied than esteemed. And when that happens, God help us. Dan Rather did a radio spot entitled, Whatever Happened to Sin? Ellen Goodman, who is a columnist for the Boston Globe, wrote an article, quote, The Goodness of Guilt. Meg Greenfield of Newsweek wrote an article recently called, The Possibility of Moral Absolutes. Probably the most vocal of them all and the one who got most of the attention and the one who got most attention recently was Ted Koppel as he addressed a a Duke commencement. He said this, quote, we have actually convinced ourselves that slogans will save us shoot up if you must but use a clean needle enjoy sex whenever and with whomever but just use a condom no the answer is no and not because it isn't cool or smart or because you might end up in jail or dying in an AIDS ward but no because it is wrong because we have spent 5,000 years as a race of rational human beings trying to drag ourselves out of the primeval slime by searching for truth and moral absolutes. In its truest form, truth is not a polite tap on the shoulders, it is a howling reproach. What Moses brought down from Mount Sinai were not the ten suggestions." See, what even the secular world is crying out for today is whatever happened to men and women of integrity. Whatever happened to people that stood for something and and stood firm on their convictions? And what breaks my heart is whatever happened to people who are supposedly Christians who say that they're submissive to the authority of God, who say that it's the Bible that that basically is the standard for the way that they live, and the world can't tell the difference between the players. See, that's the hardest thing for us to, to try to deal with here this morning. And I have to tend to agree with them. The truth is not a polite tap on the shoulders. It is a howling reproach. And that's what we're here to study. That's what we're here to look at. God's Word is always a howling reproach. It always takes us where we are. It's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It takes us where we're standing and shows us the direction that we should go. And there's nothing pleasant about it. There's nothing polite about it. But it's the truth. And Jesus said it best when he said the truth will set you free. See, the world is looking for absolutes and uh, that's what we're here to talk about this morning and we've been looking at a man whose name is Daniel and on his epitaph we could have been read one word that summarized his life and that was here lies a man of integrity his whole life the 70 years that God gives us a portrait of who he was and what he did was a life of integrity but before we take a look at that final chapter I've got a question for you as it relates to your life today have you ever had to deal with people who have tried to make you look bad to further their own cause Do you have any of those people at your office? Amen. Do you have any of those people in your life? Amen. Are you depressed? Amen. 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 The truth shall set you free. Amen. How do you respond to them? See, I can't use that word. I'd love to use those little, they're they're little, you know, those kissy people that run around your office all the time. They want to, you know, to the boss and stuff, and they, they say whatever the boss wants to hear so that it'll somehow or another elevate them to the position that they're going after and somehow or another demote you or step all over you to get there. You've been there. You've seen it. How do you respond to people like that? We had the, what's that? Thank God it's Friday. Huh? Oh, two checks on Friday. Oh, good, well, see, you're, you're a man of authority. How about the rest of you that can't give them two checks? What do you do? How do you deal with them? How do you deal with somebody right now that's trying to stab you in the back to make himself look better? Not that the Bible's relevant or anything, but this has been going on for a long time. 2,500 years ago, Daniel had to deal with the same thing. How did he deal with people that conspired against him? And uh, that's really the issue. Um, Last week we had, the, the, the Kemp's were staying with us and had a, their, their oldest child um, has allergies. This poor little guy, he was just kind of just dying with these allergies. And um, he came up with a term that I had never heard. We got three kids, I'd never heard this one before. But I walked downstairs, it was Saturday morning and he was sitting on the, uh, in the family room on the floor and um, I looked at him, his eyes were all watery and he had, um, what would you call snots if you want to be a little more... Um, <laughs> you want to be a little more dignified and you don't want to offend any of the people in here that don't like the word snot. Nasal, di- nasal, nasal discharge. <laughs> Unobstructed view. No trees. Nasal discharge. Okay, anyway, so he was sitting on the ground and he had this nasal discharge that was running down his face. And, um, and, he, and he looked at me and said, Chuck, I had a nose spill. It was great. He had, a, he had a nose spill. It was like, okay, do these people that you're working with, do they cause you to want to have a stomach spill? <laughs> we can make this palatable. I'll do that on areas like this, but when we're going to get into the meat here, I'm not going to do it, but this is palatable. Nose spill is palatable. Stomach spill is palatable. It is? <laughs> uh, anyway, so, do these people just kind of make you sick at your stomach? Do you leave there just like uh, sick to your stomach at what's going on? Uh, Do you leave there um, maybe just uh, resentful and bitter every night you go home? Every day you see what they're doing? Is there a bitterness eating at you like a cancer and an ulcer in your stomach? How do you respond to them? Do you uh, resent it? Do you want to retaliate? Are you angry? Do you look for a way to get even? Do you possibly even conspire yourself to somehow make them look bad so that you'll look better? It's kind of interesting. Most of us who are in business today, our, our, our uh, selling program consists of trying to make all of your competition look bad as if then somehow or another you're the only one left so they have to do business with you. That always amazes me. It's like nobody else is any good. We're not a whole lot better. But the way I see it, you don't have a choice. Wouldn't you buy from us? It's never on our own merits. It's never whether, hey, look, you know what? I don't care what anybody else is doing. I don't care what's going on. But here's what we have to offer. Here's the services we provide. Here's how good we are at what we've done. And here's how long we've been doing it. And we continue to maintain that. Here's our program over here. I'm not here to talk about them. Let their own people come in and try to sell you on what their benefits are. But here's what we're doing. See, a lot of us have that reverse thing where we say, ah, well, you know what? I've got I to try to do the same thing that they're doing if I'm going to look good. So I'm going to conspire just like they conspire to make me look better. So the problem is that 2,500 years ago, Daniel was dealing with a situation that's no different than your office or mine or with people in your life that were in his life. They conspired against him to make themselves look good at his expense so that they could get the promotion that he was in line to get. How did he handle it? We're going to see in the life of a man who is known for his integrity that he lived a consistent life and we'll see the principle of consistency over conspiracy in the sixth chapter of the book of Daniel. So turn there and take a look and see how he dealt with the whole problem because he had the same one that you and I have. <coughs> Daniel, chapter, Daniel chapter 6. Now we'll pick up the account at verse 1. We read, It seemed good to Darius to appoint a hundred and satraps over the kingdom, that they should be in charge of the whole kingdom, and over them three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them, and that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps, because he possessed an extraordinary spirit, and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and not negligent or corrupt, and neither was found to be in him. When these men said, we shall not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom and the perfects, the satraps, the high officials, the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for thirty days shall be cast into the lion's den." Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document, that is the injunction. Interesting parallels, aren't there, going on here between what Daniel went through and what many of us go through. If you haven't gone through it, you will go through it, I guarantee, and I'll go to prove that as we go throughout this text. But it's interesting, the parallels, and you could plug in the different names as you go through this. Okay, so it's not Daniel anymore, but it becomes you. And it's not the, the satraps and the commissioners and uh, uh, the perfects and the high officials, but it's you fill in the blanks and name those people that are now attacking you. They look for him for a ground of accusation, and we'll get into that, but it's, read, it's been written that adversity is a test of our stability, our ability to survive and to endure, but prosperity is a test of our integrity. Like nothing else, it reveals the honest-to-goodness truth regarding our most basic value system. Difficult, though, it may be to grasp this fact. Integrity is hammered out on the anvil of prosperity, or it fails completely. I want you to realize that this man was in a position of tremendous prosperity. It was the good times that were now reappearing and resurfacing in his life. Proverbs 27:21, Solomon wrote, "...the crucible is for silver and the furnace for fire." but man is tested by the praise that he receives. The, ad, the, uh, the adoration that we receive, the praise that we receive is really what's going to test what's, what's inside of us. Whether we're people, as God says, are people of integrity, or whether we have a price. It's the praise that we need to worry about, more so sometimes in adversity in the, in the area of integrity. And so as we go through this, we're going to see that the test of prosperity will help reveal the truth of Daniel's integrity. There are six things about this particular passage that we're going to notice. The first one is this, and that is the position of Daniel. As you take a look at this, it says that uh, basically the organizational chart or structure is this. You've got the king is at the top. Underneath this, if we had an overhead, you'd see that there were three basic uh, vice presidents, so to speak. Each one of them, he's called their commissioners. The commissioners were responsible in turn for 40 men throughout the kingdom that were accountable to them. So you've got the king, you've got Daniel, you've got another gentleman, and another gentleman, and each one of them have 40 different high-level governmental officials who report directly to him. That's the structure, that's the position, that's the chart. I find it fascinating because for 20-some years, Daniel disappeared from the scene. And it wasn't until we were reintroduced in the last chapter with Belshazzar, that now Daniel was back in prominence again he was gone he was, out of, he was out of the circuit he was out of the authority loop and how often the problem comes in when you're out of the loop and you begin to miss the loop when you're reintroduced to the loop you say man I don't want to get back out of the loop again I like being in the, this authority loop I like being in the position that I'm in and so I'm going to do whatever I can to hang on to it because I don't want to be out of the loop again have you ever been there? Or how easy it is to conspire to get back into the loop because, after all, didn't Daniel, and you fill in the blank here because you've said it before, but didn't Daniel give 45 years, the best years of his life, to the kingdom? Wasn't it Daniel who served faithfully under Nebuchadnezzar and then disappeared when Nebuchadnezzar died and four administrations later he finally resurfaces again? Nabonidus, who was the father of Belshazzar for 17 years, ruled the government and Daniel's not mentioned as having a part in his government at all. So it's been 20 years, and the hunger and the thirst is there to get back into the loop. And so he said what he could have said was what a lot of us say, and that is this. Didn't we give 40 years, the best years of our life, to the company, and now look how they reward me. Somehow or another, I'm going to get back into the loop, and I don't care how I do it. You see it often with athletes and youth movements. It's like, boy, didn't we give 15 years, the best years of our life, to what was going on. And so all of a sudden there's a youth movement that takes place and they bring in all the new guys and the tendency is there and the temptation is there to be embittered about the fact that you're on this end now and here comes the people over here. What God's trying to teach each one of us through this life of a man who had integrity was, look, hey, God is still sovereign, God is still on the throne, and why do we have to succumb to conspire to maintain a position and to fight and to scratch and do whatever we can to maintain it? And we're going to learn from the life of Daniel that Daniel never did that. Daniel never conspired to get back into the loop. God chose and gave him an opportunity, and Daniel always took advantage of the opportunity that came up. So here we see him in a position of authority again. And as we go through it, we've got to ask ourselves the same question. It amazes me how bitter some of us get, and I've heard parents say it about their children. Didn't we do this for them? Didn't we give them the best years of our life, the prime of our life, we spent raising children who you'd think they don't appreciate a thing that we did. And, they get, and you get all bitter, and you get all bent out of shape about it, and you get all upset about it. And, you know, and we hear it in businesses today, I gave 10, 15 years, I gave 20 years, I gave 30 years. And, 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 you know, and then papers reported, isn't it a crime that Joe Blow gave 40 years of his life to Alice Chalmers and then they went bankrupt? It's sad, I feel bad for them, but I don't feel real, real bad because the way I see it is, they, if they're Christians, they're not serving all Chalmers, they're not serving whoever they work for, but they're serving God, and there's a whole different principle involved here. Do I feel bad for an athlete that had a certain length of a career? No, I say, hey, your attitude should be praise God that you even had the opportunity to be where you were when you were there. Do I feel bad for anybody that, that lose their job because their company goes bankrupt and goes out of business and their whole life was revolving around what their plans are based on this company? I'm sorry, I don't feel bad about it at all. You know why? Because God puts you there for a reason, and God also allowed this to take place for a reason, and hey, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, another man of integrity, Job. So, you look at this and you say, well, gee whiz, why wouldn't he be bitter about it? Well, obviously, he must have some kind of relationship with God that changes his whole attitude about what happens in his life. Maybe one that we can get plugged into and look for ourselves. This is the position that he was in. Why did he get the promotion that he was planning to get? This is what fascinates me, and this is what we need to concentrate a little more on. It says in verse 3, this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps, because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. And the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. There was something special about this guy. Could it be that maybe just the simple fact he never did anything to conspire to get the position that he had? Could it be maybe the little simple fact that uh, he wasn't bitter about what happened to him and where he was? Could it be the fact that maybe he was, uh, had a good attitude about what happens in his life? that no matter what happened, he would learn to be content, as Paul said, that he praised God in all situations through adversity and prosperity that he never wavered from trusting in God, a man of integrity, consistently walking with God. Could it be that maybe that stood out in his life? I mean, if you had that same extraordinary spirit in your life, could it be that maybe you'd be a little different than the people around you? Just a little bit? But most people that we deal with are, are just like that. Great attitude, not bitter, not backstabbing. Not trying to do anything they can to connive to keep their position. I mean, that's what your office is like, right? Everybody just kind of... <laughs> I'm so happy to be here and just, you know, isn't that the way it is? is the thing, you guys saying amen all the time You going, right. I knew that was sarcastic. That's good to know. Amen. Here we go again. What is an extraordinary spirit? A lot of times we over-spiritualize this by saying, well, it's, you know, we know that Daniel was a man who trusted in God and it must have been the Spirit of God that was residing in him. It was, that's what it was all about. Turn back for a moment to chapter 5 and look at verse 11. An extraordinary spirit. Wouldn't it be nice if all of us were accused of having extraordinary spirits? What was it? Look at verse 11. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, and in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom. Wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. Verse 12. He had an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, insight, interpretation. He could explain enigmas and solving difficult problems. And you go on in verse 14. He says, In him was a spirit of extraordinary wisdom. The man had Wisdom. And you know how this man got wisdom? Because he went to the right schools. Because he got an MBA. Because then he did his doctorate work on the economic cycles of Babylon at the time. (laughs) That's how he got his wisdom, isn't it? How do you get wisdom? Can I ask you just a stupid trick question? Ask. Ask. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously and above reproach. God doesn't laugh when you seek his face for wisdom. It says he's generous and he doesn't ridicule you. He doesn't make fun of you because you don't know. Because he already knows you don't know. That's why you're asking. He knows that. He's God. So he's not going to laugh at you and he's not going to make fun of you and he's not going to say, gee, you should know that by now. After all, you did go to graduate school. Then you apply yourself? I mean, that's the way we are when we ask somebody, I'm sorry, I don't know that. Can you explain that to me? Well, you should know that by now. And most of the time it's because the person you ask doesn't know. So they won't make you feel stupid about the fact you don't know and you think they know, so whole whole life is a bluff. I don't even think that's in Proverbs, but. I mean, don't let people blow smoke at you. I mean, it's a big smoke screen. Life is a smoke screen. You talk to somebody, they want you to feel dumber than them. Because why? Because they don't know. You know God says? If you don't know, don't be afraid to ask. Whoa! Wouldn't it be incredible if you were a guy or a gal that could admit you don't know everything? Would you have an extraordinary spirit? Because everybody in your office knows everything, that's why no one wants to help anybody with anything because they're afraid if they share any information with anybody else to make them look better that they may be replaceable. So we keep secrets. We don't want to help anybody get ahead. Because if they get ahead, they may get ahead of us. And we've been there longer, and so we have seniority. And the last thing we want is somebody else getting ahead of us who just came in. So we don't want to share anything with them. It's like, uh, where's the copy machine room? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Don't want to give you a little advantage over me here. You know where we can find some pens? I don't know. Out of stationery? Ooh, gee, that's too bad. You have a whole drawer full of it, you know? It's like... Boy, you sure are stupid. I'm not going to worry about you. It was like, uh, I was talking to J- Jackie, and I don't want to mention the name of the guy, but he said that they had a guy, the Rams drafted a guy, first-round draft choice, 19 Nah, <laughs> Anyway, back into it that way. But they drafted a the guy, this guy is huge. He has like 6'8", 290, benched like 600 pounds. He was a fine, as they say in the business, a fine physical specimen. It was like, everyone saw him just went, well, what are we going to be doing after uh, football? <laughs> or start checking out some other careers? And they just, I mean, it was like the temptations there—not to help him. You don't want to help him because this guy's trying to take your job. So the last thing you want to do is help him. And It was like, well, okay. So he trusted guy, helped him every way that he could. The guy was a bust. Guy looked good on paper, looked good in person, but he couldn't block worth of beans. Bench press 600 pounds. And you know what? You've talked enough for this morning. That's enough from you. <laughs> I, I've, got, I've got like a sixth statement rule that I have here. It's our ethics com- committee has uh, done that so that we don't lose control of here because I've got the microphone and the tape going and you're burning valuable time. I was like, I heard it. No, as I was gonna say? was, I heard it. You know, one of those calling shows this week, radio? It was, uh, I think it was uh, Walter Martin. Somebody called into Walter Martin and uh, said, uh, hey, do you know such and such a pastor down at such and such and the address and the name and everything down in LA? And he said, no, I don't really think I do. She said, well, my husband's the assistant pastor there and we meet at 9 and 11 and also we're on Channel 40 at 9.30 every week. And he goes, well, oh, you snuck in a free one on my time, didn't you? And he laughed about it and I thought it was cute, but not exactly here. I thought it was cute for him. Nah, no, just kidding. Okay. So, anyway, as we're going through this, it's like, do you help people regardless of what, it thinks, what you think the cost is going to be, or do you hold back? Because, see, you're afraid that you can't trust God anymore. You're afraid because you trust your own abilities and not the fact that God is sovereign and has put you where you're at. So what you try to do is, let's not help anybody get an advantage over us, Let's not be generous. Let's not be gracious. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously and above reproach. But the foundation for wisdom is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There is no one here on earth that will have wisdom if they don't have a relationship with God that's centered on the fact that He exists and they're in awe of Him and they have reverence for Him. Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Always has been, always will be. See, what fascinates me is that, you know what, Daniel's 80 years old now, okay, so we all sit and say, man, he's got a lot of experience, he's 80 years old, he's learned a lot through the kingdom, blah, 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 but what do you say when he's 15 years old, when he first was introduced into Babylon in the first chapter, and he had the same wisdom that was present there as it is now, 70 years later, what are you going to write that off to? 15-year-old kid doesn't have any wisdom, does he? Unless you ask him, and then he thinks he's got it all. But the amazing thing to me is that Daniel's 15 years old and he had the same spirit of wisdom. He had the same extraordinary spirit in him at 15 that he does at 80. So I got to pin it back to the fact that his wisdom comes from God. He had a wisdom that was not confined to earth, but it was was centered on the throne of God where he could tap into it anytime that he wanted, that he could go and he knew God was going to be generous and would not ridicule him, but he knew that he didn't know everything. Folks, if there's one thing about a man or woman of integrity that stands out throughout the life of the Daniel, it's the fact that, guess what? He knew he didn't know everything. And when you're open and when you're teachable, you've got a chance to go a long way in the kingdom of God. God could do a lot of things with a person who knows they don't know anything aside from the truth that he has to teach. Man, if we could just be that way. Daniel had an extraordinary spirit. He was submissive. He wasn't rebellious. He accepted his role. He learned to be content. He had peace. He had joy. The bottom line is he had a great attitude. And you know what? When you like a guy like that reporting directly to you, what do you think he was going to get promoted for? Because he conspired or because he was consistent? It's great. Go back to Daniel chapter 6. The thing that fascinates me about it is if I'm going to promote anybody, I'm going to promote that kind of guy. Because I don't want to have to deal with all these other guys. I don't want to have to have them coming to me and telling me about what you did or what he did or what she did or what they said or what they can't do or what they thought they could do but now they can't do. I don't want to deal with someone like that. I want to deal with somebody who has a good attitude, who's going to be willing to teach and to train and to help those who are underneath them to become better at what they're doing. Even to the point where it may mean they may be better than them and they'll pass them up. The goal of every one of us as Christians is to be able to train a disciple so that the man of God may be adequately equipped to do every good work. And if it means that one day your disciple passes you up and God uses them for further greater things in the kingdom of God, you all step back and say, praise God that I can just have a small part in this whole thing. The sad thing to me is that we try to suppress one another to make ourselves look better because as Gary Trudeau said, we live in an age where we'd rather be envied than esteemed. Men and women, what are you doing to help people around you to attain the greater potential that God has given them? That's why he's going to get promoted for no other reason. Let's take a look at the second thing. Guess what happens? People don't like it. When you have an extraordinary spirit, when you're good at what you do, people won't like it. Can we just get that real clear? Do you all hear that? When you do what you do very well, the people around you will not like it. There. There. That's simple. We could skip this whole next section. But we won't, because I still have time. It says, The commissioners, in verse 4, began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. But they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption. Inasmuch as he was faithful, there was no negligence nor corruption that were found in him. He did his job too well. Have you ever done that? You ever do your job too well? Do you have people working with you say, hey, uh, slow down a little? You're making everybody else look bad? Come on, let's kind of dog it a little. Come uh, don't be out there in front. Kind of stay in the pack. It's like I mean, when you're in school, is always great. Uh, don't get such good grades because it throws the grading curve off. You know? Or, so what we'll do is that you know, if you're standing out with an extraordinary spirit above all the rest of your peer group, your contemporaries, what they're going to want to do is either ask you, if you wouldn't mind, please slowing down a little bit because you're making the rest of us look stupid, or what they're going to do is they're going to persecute you every way that they can so either you have a choice where you're going to slow down with them and be a part of them or you're going to stand out alone. You're not going to be in the social loop anymore if you keep doing what you're doing. You've been there? See, that's, a, that's basically what his grounds of uh, accusation were. He was accused of doing a good job. Isn't that awful? You know what's amazing to me? Is that we think when we're persecuted for doing what's right, that we shouldn't suffer. And so our conclusion is, what we're doing must not be right. So our choice is either we're going to maintain and continue going on in the direction we're going, or we're going to become a part of the peer group and stay back. This came to me this past week. We're dealing with a situation that's very similar to this where when you tell the truth, you're going to have a problem. Because Jesus said that when the light is shown in darkness, it will reveal the evil of men. And when you stand out in the crowd, or when you apply biblical principles to your life, and the people around you are not doing that, guess what's going to happen? It's going to shine light in the middle of darkness. It'll expose the corruption and the graft and the negligence and everything else that's going on. And guess what? If you're part of that loop, you're not going to like the light. Men and women, don't be surprised that Jesus Christ was hated by men. He was the truth of God. In him we saw truth. He, he bore witness of the truth, John the Baptist, of Jesus Christ. He stood in the midst of all of us. We saw the light. We beheld it. It exposed the evil, sinful nature of man, and man hated him and put him to death on a cross. Why in the world are we so surprised that when we're committed to living a life that's pleasing to God and we shine light in a dark situation that you expect somehow or another for people around you to like you, to love you, and to want to accept you? It is foolishness to even believe that. And so what will happen is that when you start feeling the heat, guess what you come to the conclusion of? I must be doing something wrong. I told the truth, and this is what happened all of a sudden people are calling me, and they're attacking me, they're saying why did you do this and why did you say that and what did you let people know what was going on for and who do you think you are and what's going on and so you get all this pressure and the phone's ringing off the hook, you just want to throw the phone down and say God I'll never do that again. Well why? Because I don't like the price that I have to pay to be a man of integrity. I don't like the fact that the people around me don't like me anymore. Because all I did was do what you asked me to do. I was faithful in my job. I did my job as best as I could. Look at verse 4. It says he was faithful, and there was no negligence that was found in him. He got the job done. Negligence. He got the job done. He committed himself wholeheartedly to the task that was before him, he didn't let his peer group slow him down. He did the best that he could be. And because of that, the people around him hated him and they wanted to kill him for it or at least get him demoted. And the last thing they wanted to do was have to report to him. Wouldn't you hate it if you were taking kickbacks and bribes and you were corrupt to know that the guy who was now going to be your boss was a guy who was above reproach. He couldn't buy him. you couldn't get him to be part of the group and the gang. Wouldn't you hate to report to a guy like that? That's the position that was going on. Ye old royal printer let out the news that Darius was going to go ahead and promote him. He had his business cards being pr- printed up. It says he had planned to do it in verse 3, and as soon as they found that out, they didn't want to report to this guy because he knew what was going on. And as soon as he was in position of authority, he would stop it from happening. He would stop the negligence. He would demand that they would put in the time they needed to put in. He would demand that they would not be corrupt in the positions that they had, or he'd replace them and bring somebody else in that wasn't. Isn't that wonderful? Not to Daniel it wasn't. Because he was going to have to pay a price if he was going to be consistent in his walk with God. He was either going to be consistent or he was going to give in to the conspiracy. He was going to knuckle under. That's the whole thing. Can I ask you some tough questions? Are you good at what you do? If you are, don't expect the world to applaud. It's ironic to me that in a society that searches for role models and heroes, as soon as we have one, we can't wait to see them fall. We search the world around to elevate somebody, and as soon as they're there, we can't wait to find something that we can find accusation against them and just drag them down and step all over them. Dying for role models, can't stand it when we have one. Because when we do, it sheds light on where we stand. If you're good at what you do, and you stand out above the crowd, and you have an extraordinary spirit, then you better expect all hell to break loose in your life. Because, really, that's where it comes from, the gates of hell. Satan wants you to compromise, he wants you to give in to conspiracy, and God wants you to be consistent with him. That's your choice. Are you negligent because of the peer pressure? Are you corrupt? Do you benefit personally? Are you a man of integrity, as Daniel was? Where do you stand? Do you abuse expense accounts? Do you abuse company car privileges? Do you use company credit cards to run personal expenses through your business? Do you use company credit card in the family car instead of your business car because they can get a free, gallon, you know, free tank of gas? See, if somebody would hold you up under a microscope, kind of examine your life, would they be, find the only thing they can accuse you of is a consistent walk with God? Or would they find something they can nail you with and say, if you say one word, we're going to expose this, so you're going to have to come back in the group? And you have to be a part of us, because if you're not going to be a part of us, we're going to have to let this be known. And as soon as people find out about it, you're on your way out anyway. So guess how we get to conform to the group? By not being morally blameless before God. You know what they found? Man, we examined this guy upside down. We traced him. We followed him. We went everywhere that he went. We examined the books. We looked at his financial statements. We examined his tax returns. We've done everything that we can. We can't find anything to blame on this guy. The only thing that we know he has a problem with is he's consistent with his walk with God. That's the only thing we're going to be able to nail him for. So Daniel wasn't negligent, wasn't corrupt, and everybody knew he couldn't be bought. Great guy, isn't he? Sure is, if you want him to work for you, but not if you want him to work with you and what you're doing is not right. So he's going to suffer the consequences. In God's eyes, Dan, Daniel was a man of integrity. In the world's eyes, he was a problem that needed to be eradicated. So they got together, and that's the plot. So you know what he did? Did he relent? Did he give up? Did he go back to the group? Look at verse 10 and 11. Look at his prayer. I love it. It says, Now Daniel knew that the document was signed. He entered his house, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had done so previously. Then these men came in, by agreement and found him making petition and supplication before his God. You know what he did? He did the same thing he always did. He was consistent before God. This wasn't a prayer of oh my God help me now Lord. I just found out they're trying to get rid of me. They're gonna kill me for my relationship with you. What should I do? I can't believe after 20 years of not being in the authority loop and now thrown back in here I was planning on getting a promotion. I can't believe that now I'm gonna lose my life for my walk with you. So I think at this point in time, we should sever our relationship. I'll maintain the position I'm in, and I'll be grateful for the fact you got me there because I know you couldn't have promoted me to this position for me to end up having to be tested to lose my life. Was he going to be consistent, or would he give in to the conspiracy? And you know what he did? I have nothing to lose by continuing my walk with God. Let me ask you, what's the worst thing that to happen to you if you're consistent in your walk with the, with the Lord? if you're consistent to the principles that God has laid out if you're a man or woman of conviction and you stand for Him, what's the worst thing that can happen to you? worst case scenario, they'll kill you alright, well I got good news and bad news, the bad news is trumpets blasting when they pick up a martyr and say come on into the presence of God somehow the welcome is going to be somewhat more special I got to believe for those men and women who stand up with their conviction and are murdered for their faith see the worst thing that happens to you is you'll get killed you're sitting there thinking oh the worst thing that happens to me is I lose my job the worst thing that happens to me is that I won't have any more friends the worst thing that happened to me is uh, you fill in the blank the way I see it is the worst thing that happens to you is they'll kill you and that's the best news in the world for a Christian Paul said it hey for me to die is gain I'm going to be with the Lord but until he works it out, it's better for you that I stay because I can teach you and I can admonish you and I can rebuke you and reprove you and correct you and train you in righteousness because you need to know how to live your life pleasing to God. I don't know, man, but the worst thing, I, that, I mean, his buddies knew that. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew that. You know what they said? Hey, guess what? The worst thing you do is kill me, throw me in the, far, in the furnace. So we die, we die. We're with the Lord. Who cares? Lose my job, lose my job. I don't care. Lose my household, I could care less. What is it going to take for us to realize that the worst thing can happen to a Christian is the best thing that we're all looking forward to? It's like, so you think that we'd stand our conviction so they could hurry up and get us there. I mean, you can't look at me like, you are nuts. But think about it. Isn't it true? The, the prayer of Daniel is this. He was consistent. He did as he always did. Morning, noon, and night. This is great. You want to talk about I ah, will get to that. i skip some of this stuff because I'm running out of time. Okay, but you know what's wonderful to me? He was consistent over the conspiracy. He did what he always did. And if what he always did was what's going to get him into trouble, he say, praise God, that's the way it's going to be. If you tell the truth because the truth is the truth and you consistently do it in your life and it means sometimes you catch flack for it and sometimes you're going to hear about it, then who cares? Be consistent in your walk with God. People are not going to like their deeds being exposed if they're not pleasing to God. Whether it's a Christian or a non-Christian, don't expect people to applaud you when you take a, quote, narrow-minded stand and, and stand on the firm convictions of the Word of God. This book is not meant to be a polite tap on the shoulders, but to be a fierce reproach before men. If we understand that, maybe we'd start to be a little more steady in our walk. Maybe we went back down to the pressure. Anyway, so that's what happens. He's, pro- he's persecuted for what he did. He did nothing wrong. I want you to realize that. He stood firm and he was consistent with his walk for God and they threw him in the lion's den. Well, the wonderful news is nothing happened to him in the lion's den because God protected him. And so as I ramble through this last couple of passages here, I want to get to the application because it's more important from this standpoint as we leave on how to apply all this. Number one first step is this. Pace your peer group. Can you do that? Can you pace your peer group? Could you be the one who's committed to excellence? The sad rap on Christians today is that they're so, quote, earth, uh, earth, heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. They have no uh, moxie. They have no guts. Um, they don't care about anything. They're kind of, well, who cares? They're wishy-washy. They don't stand for anything. And so the world looks at him and says, who needs Christians? I mean, I need somebody who is good at what they do. Jesus Christ came into your office and said, listen, sir, I'd like to speak to the best employee that you have. Who would that be? Oh, you'll find him down the hall on the right, and I think you already know him. Is that what the direction would be? Are you any good at what you do? Are you committing to be excellent? Would you pace your peer group and be in front of them and stand out, especially on moral and ethical issues that God addresses in His Word? Would you be the one to pace that group, or are you going to be the one who has to come back and join the ranks because you don't want to lose a friend or two along the way? You don't want to make anybody look bad, so what you'll do is you'll compromise what God has told you to do. Pace your peer group. Be excellent in what you do. Second thing is irritate your inquisitors. If people were checking into your life, could you irritate them on the fact that they couldn't find anything that they can accuse you of? Could they look into your personal records, your financial records, into every area of your life, open the drawers of your desk, and not find anything that they can accuse you on? Could they ask the people that work around you if you've ever done anything, if you've ever stabbed them in the back, if you've ever said anything bad about them, if you've ever done any of those things, if they asked them, would they be able to say, man, you know what? I don't understand this guy, but he does everything he can to help me, even though he knows that I'm trying to take his place. He does everything he can to help me. There's nothing more irritating than that. Have you ever been at a baseball game or a sporting event where the crowd is? I mean, the crowd is standing. They're they're you know giving the raspberry to the guy who's up at the plate. It's it's second and third, and there's two outs and there's two strikes, and they're ah, screaming at him. What shuts him up? A double up the alley. What shuts him shuts him up at a at a uh, football game? first down what shuts him up at a basketball game when a guy's on the free throw line with the the game on the line and they're all screaming and yelling at him throwing stuff at him you know talking about his mama and things like that you know what shuts him up dropping two through the hoop see you know what shuts people up in this world when they want to accuse you excellent performance that's what shuts him up Nothing shut him up quicker. It amazes me. you got 60,000 people at a sporting event standing up screaming at somebody and he drives a double off the wall and they win the game and the people all go, I may not like him, but he's good. I may hate him when he's on another team, but I sure love when we trade and get him. Boy, I like to have him in my dugout. See, that's what shuts him up. Third thing is this. Do you practice your priorities? Daniel was second in command at all of the the, uh, kingdom... And you know what he did? He had time three times a day, morning, noon, and night, as David wrote in the Psalms, to spend time with God. I don't know, I'm sorry, but I'm afraid that we all think a little bit too much of ourselves and how busy we are in the position that we're in. Somewhere or another, I don't look out here at anybody that's second in command of, of the, of the uh, first largest kingdom of the world and now the second largest kingdom of the world, and he had time to practice his priorities which were to spend time faithfully with God. To get into the Word, to find out what God expected of his life, to spend time in prayer, to spend time with his Lord. I don't see how any of us can say we're more busy than He was. I'm sorry, I mean you can and argue your point all you want with me, but I'm looking at a guy here who had time three times a day to get down on his knees and to seek wisdom. Maybe that's why he had an extraordinary spirit. Maybe he was plugged into God on a regular basis. Maybe he continually asked wisdom of every decision he had to make in his life. Every problem that came up, every challenge that came up, he was down on his knees saying, God, I don't know anything about this. You already know that. That's why I'm coming to you. He practiced his priorities. We get a whole, a whole uh, all of Christendom today says, we've got to read the Bible, we've got to pray, we've got to do this, we've got to do that, but no one's practicing it. Everybody's talking it. Fourth thing is this, anticipate your angel. When you're in the, in the middle of all of it, when you're, you're in the fiery furnace, when you're in the lion's den, you just look for the angel of God to protect you. You know, the Bible says that angels are ministering spirits. And that they're messengers from God. You know, the greatest messenger from God that we ever saw on this, on this planet and walked this planet Earth was Jesus Christ. The greatest messenger from God. The extraordinary spirit of a man of Daniel starts with coming to know him in a personal way putting your faith and your trust in Him. He's the messenger of God that we can anticipate that's there always for us. To protect us, to be present in our life, to bring us through hard times, and to help us to realize the worst thing can ever happen is they kill you and you'll be with Him. See, that's the messenger of God that we need to understand. Anticipate it. And the last thing is this, win your world for Christ. Turn to me uh, to Matthew chapter 5 and we'll close on this. Matthew chapter 5. Men and women, I want you to realize that if you're going to be a person of integrity, that it really boils right down to this. Matthew chapter 5, starting with verse 10. And this will be true of your life if you want to be a man or a woman of integrity. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It is good for nothing anymore, except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under the peck measure, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. A man or a woman of integrity is a light in a dark world. The darkness is in search of light today. They're screaming for it. They're yelling for it. They're looking for men and women of integrity who know where they stand and why they stand there. Who know that they're not going to waver from it regardless of the price that they're going to pay. They're men and women, as we said, who are consistent and they consistently live in a manner that's pleasing to God they continue to do so, trusting the Lord and His ways, despite the circumstances and the pressures that come from a world that's quite hostile to it. Be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil in the Lord will never be in vain. That's integrity. Let's pray. Our Father, it's Our desire this morning here that if uh, we're not pleasing to you in some area of our life, that if we have a closet that needs cleaned up, that we can repent, that we can remove it, and that there will be no grounds of accusation against any one of us if the world examines our life. God, help us to know your word so we can know where to stand. You said your word is a light unto our feet, a lamp unto our feet, and a light unto our path. God, help us to know what our conviction should be. Help us to seek your face and your wisdom in every situation that comes in life, no matter how easy or difficult it may appear to us, but that you're generous with your wisdom. When we look at this man of Daniel and his life of integrity, and we realize he was always plugged into you. He consistently walked with you regardless of the price that he needed to pay. Whether it cost him his position in this earth, whether it even cost him his life, he trusted in you and knew your ways were better. God, help us to realize we have nothing to lose except our walk with You. And the bitterness and the guilt and the hurt that comes with knowing that we've offended You, that we've let You down. The greatest price any of us can pay as believers of You is that we fail You and let You down. God, it pains us more than losing a job or a house or material possessions than to know that we've denied You before men. God, help us to be God-pleasers and not people-pleasers in the environment that you've put us. Help us to be a light that you use to draw people to yourself. We see that Darius made a proclamation to believe in the one and true living God, that he put his faith and trust in you because of a man who never wavered from his integrity, who was consistent in his walk with you. God, he see it all through his life. And we just thank you and ask that you give us the strength through your Holy Spirit to be pleasing to you, offensive to the world, because we're consistent with You, and to use that offense as a means to draw people to Your Son. We just thank You and praise You in Christ's name. Amen.